Hello, it's Kamal Ahmed here, and I'm here to tell you about Energized. The brand new podcast, Intelligent Squared, is launching in partnership with Ipadrola. The climate crisis is the most pressing issue of our time. Temperatures are set to rise more than 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels in the next two decades, an increase that will cause irreversible damage to our planet. But is there still hope? If humans are to blame for climate change, then we must also provide the solutions. And that's where Energized comes in. Join me as I bring together experts and policymakers to delve deep into the key issues at the heart of the global drive towards net zero and the innovations that promise to accelerate the energy transition and transform the way we live. Just search Energized wherever you get your podcasts. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm Connor Boyle. We invited four leading voices to debate the issue of rewilding. Is the natural beauty of the countryside really natural enough? The British countryside is often heralded for its natural beauty, but much of these bucolic landscapes are, of course, man-made, with farming occupying much of the footprint. Our host for the debate is journalist, broadcaster and author Jonathan Dimbleby. Let's join Jonathan and the conversation. Thank you very much. It's a real pleasure to be here for this debate. The motion for the debate reads, The battle for the countryside, Britain should rewild its uplands. Which can seem to some, maybe, an arcane subject. Not to me, however, nor I imagine to you, and certainly not to our speakers. The challenge that you face is to choose between competing options and sharply contrasting visions, not only about the future character of a great swathe of Britain's most treasured landscape, but more broadly, uh, a character that goes to the heart of a wider debate about the environment. We'll hear about growing threats to biodiversity, about the role of farming, prospects for tourism, about local uh, livelihoods and agricultural subsidies, about deep-rooted communities and cultures, about heritage and, of course, about landscape and beauty. In short, the debate is about a, a number of very important dilemmas that are delineated, if you like, in the uplands but have much wider significance for all of us who have a care for the future. And that is where we come to our first speaker for the motion. George Monbiot, Guardian journalist, environmental campaigner, author of some, I totted it up, some 16 books on that issue of the environment and related questions. His most recent, Feral Rewilding the Land, Sea and Human Life, sets out his vision for a new way of living by re-engaging with nature in a positive way. He recently, incidentally, helped to found the charity Rewilding Britain, which seeks to redefine people's relationship to the living natural world. George Monbiot. Thank you. If you take a look at a satellite map of Britain and Europe, you'll see something very peculiar. In the rest of Europe, you'll see more or less what you would expect to see, that the lowlands 
where the soil is good and the climate is benign are farmed and as a result they're mostly treeless. And the uplands where the soil is poor and the climate is harsh are generally forested because it's not worth farming there. You look at Britain and you'll see something very odd. The lowlands, as you would expect, are largely bare, but the uplands are even barer. Above about 200 meters, trees are a rarity here. As a result, while the European average is 37% tree cover, in the UK it's 13%. The places where you would expect to find the great wildlife refuges, the functioning ecosystems, are almost completely stripped of what was once there. There are many parts of the British uplands where you can walk all day and see a few crows and a couple of pipits. Is this because of geography, because of altitude, because of climate? Not at all. Our uplands were once covered in a rich mosaic of habitats dominated by temperate rainforest, teeming with wildlife. Now they're stripped, depleted, um, depleted of soil, depleted of their water holding capacity so that the rain flashes off, causing floods downstream, depleted of wildlife, but also spectacularly depleted of human life. Our uplands are among the emptiest parts of temperate Europe because the activities there do not support anything but a handful of jobs and very poor income. Something very strange has happened in this country. What is it? And the answer, bizarrely, is taxpayers' money. The reason for the difference between Britain and Europe is that the European Union, bizarrely and disgracefully, pays people by the hectare for owning land. The more land you own, the more you get paid. It's about the most regressive redistribution of public money on earth today. And on the whole, in the rest of Europe, land holdings are relatively small. Average land holdings in the UK are much bigger than the European average. As a result, you can make a living by harvesting subsidies. And that by and large, is what is going on in the uplands. According to my estimates, which are the only thing going at the moment because there's no official figures and no academic figures, sheep in the uplands of Britain occupy roughly 4 million hectares. That's more or less the same amount of land as all the arable and horticultural land in Britain. And yet they produce 1% of our food. That 4 million hectares, incidentally, is more than twice the area of the entire built environment. All the towns, the roads, the airports, everything. Sheep in this country have done more ecological damage than all the building that has ever happened here. They are a fantastically effective means of scouring the land. They seek out tree seedlings. It's their favorite food. They then seek out all the other edible plants, leaving behind the coarse and wiry, unpalatable grasses. And in doing so, they empty the ecosystem of its richness, of its diversity, of the habitats that the animals and the other plants make use of. And the pity of it all is that this incredible swathe of destruction is employing such a pitiful number of people People who desperately need decent livelihoods. People who desperately need to be able to stay on the land. In Rory's Lake District, the average age of farmers is now 58 and rising rapidly. The young people aren't sticking with it because even with the three billion pounds of subsidies we're paying, they cannot make a decent living. And this is before Brexit. Are we going to continue after Brexit to pay three billion pounds a year for environmental destruction? The equivalent of the NHS deficit? Somehow I doubt it. Things are changing. They're changing already. And I say let's embrace this change and make a virtue of it. And make a virtue of it through rewilding. 
the mass restoration of ecosystems, not in all the uplands by any means, but in some large areas. Communities are coming back to life on the back of a nature-based economy because what you discover all over the world is that people will pay and pay well to engage with nature and to have magnificent experiences. And everywhere in these places, we see a great resurgence of wildlife guiding, of rangers, of, of bed and breakfast, of catering, of transport, of all the associated activities. Uh, because this is something without even any subsidies can actually provide decent employments. It repeoples the land as well as uh, rewilding the land. The two things go together. Rory made a charming video um, just a couple of days ago saying it's going to depeople everything. The sheep is the biggest agent of dispossession there's ever been in the British countryside. It drove the highland clearances. It drove the enclosures. In Utopia, Thomas More says, your sheep that was wont to be so mild and tame and so small eater is now, as I hear tell, become so great a devourer and so wild that it swallows down the very men themselves and eats them up. And what he was talking about... Thank you. Thank you very much. On behalf of Thomas More, I thank you. What he was talking about was the enclosure driven by the wool industry, which still to this day has left the countryside empty of people. Why don't we see this? Well, perhaps because of two and a half thousand years of ovine propaganda beginning with the pastoral poetry of Theocritus in ancient Greece, picked up by the Roman poets, picked up by the Elizabethan poets, Spencer, Marlowe, Shakespeare and the rest, picked up by the Romantics, and now every Sunday night on BBC TV. If the BBC, BBC was any keener on sheep, it would be illegal. And as a result of this... We are blinded to the realities of what is going on. That, that this agency has stripped human life and wildlife from our land. But we could have a totally different economy coupled with a totally different ecology. I envisage large areas of the land where we can see a revival of highly depleted wildlife, like wildcats, like capercaillies, a return of missing wildlife, everything from pelicans to lynx, from cranes to beavers, that where we can enhance our lives and the people who host us through reviving their economies can enhance theirs. Ladies and gentlemen, why would we not embrace this change? Why would we retain a failed model? Why would we be stuck in a past which cannot deliver for the future? I ask you to approve the motion. Thank you. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see. No hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-the-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. 
Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of what is Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents with the code squared. Simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. And now our first speaker against the motion is Minette Batters. She's president of the NFU, first woman president, incidentally, represents agriculture and horticulture in England and Wales. She runs a tenanted sheep family farm in Wiltshire, where she farms cattle, sheep, and arable. And she co-founded two campaigns, amongst other things that she's done, Ladies in Beef and the Great British Beef Week. Minette Batters. Well, I just want to start by thanking you so much for inviting me to speak here tonight. Many of you will have seen there's been a a lot of engagement on Twitter about why is this event taking place in London. I actually think it's, it's really good to have an event like this in London. I think we need to see far more of the countryside coming to the town, engaging, showing what we are doing. I am first and foremost a, a farmer. And I might be president of the NFU now, but my earliest childhood memory was of wanting to farm. So in 1998, I took on a very derelict farm with no fences, no buildings, a few fairly derelict suckler cows, and every single friend I knew saying, for goodness sake, don't do it. You have a successful career. Don't. I've never for one minute regretted that decision I made. And I guess the point I want to get across to you tonight is farmers are experts in their own field. I would acknowledge that the CAP has taken them down many a wrong alley. I would acknowledge that we can do things much better, and I hope I'll get that point across to you. Tonight, the motion, the battle for the countryside, Britain should rewild its uplands. I'm delighted to see our distinguished Secretary of State, firstly, still in his job, thank goodness. Uh, And uh, Michael Gove had the sense to talk about health and harmony. Battles, this is nature, this is the countryside. Battles have no place in that field. Um, Firstly, can I just ask how many farmers that are in the audience? Could you just put your hands up? So, not many, but how many uplands farmers? Okay, so we literally, I think I can count them on one hand. I think there are five. Um, that, is, that is quite important. There are only five upland farmers in the room, and it is their lives that we are talking about. So how many upland farmers are there? Are there 100? Are there 500? George talks about them in fairly disposable terms. Actually, in England, there are 6,500 upland farmers. So the uplands are, in the first instance, they are owned. They are cultural landscapes. They are small, farmed landscapes. And they were agreed by consensus in the 1940s. So how many people go to the uplands, to this barren wilderness? Well, actually, 70 million people visit the uplands every year. Now, many of you will know the Lake District. Many of you will know Exmoor. It's like comparing apples with pears. They are incredibly diverse in, in what they have to offer. But ultimately, 70 million people go there, and they hold 86% of open access. So that is why people go there, because they can go, they can see the beauty. So those 70 uh, million people that visit, let's break this down. George talks about subsidy. Um, 
Most governments across the world support agriculture in one way or another because they want to see food stay at a consistent price. We have a new opportunity to build a new structure uh, for the UK based on what we have to offer and how important that is. But 70 million people, and we have £230 million worth of public funding that is going into the uplands. So if you break that down, that is less than £3.30 per person per visit. Now, I don't know about you, where you live and where you park your cars, I can't even park my car for one hour in the city centre car park. Now, you can go to the uplands. I think that is a phenomenal return on investment for less than £3.30 per person. And of course, support is there to provide things that the market can't deliver on. So, 70% of our water comes from the uplands. 28 out of the 38 dragonfly species are in the uplands. Now, last week, I was in Holland talking to the Dutch farmers and I had the chance to ask them about the Oostervaarde Plassen project. It's been a rewilding project uh, just east of Amsterdam. It's 5,000 hectares in total. And it was an area of land that, as George says in his book, it's a good idea and it'll be interesting to see what happened. And that is how it started, as a, a good idea, and we'll see what happened. Well, it is an absolute disaster zone. The trees have gone the wildlife has gone, and the animals that were introduced are starving. So that is cattle, horses, and deer. The farmers' union over there said farmers would be put in prison for what has happened. And for the Dutch families in Amsterdam, instead of taking their children there to enjoy the beauty and the splendor, they take their children there at weekends loaded up with hay to feed the animals. The point I'm trying to make is you can't just stand back and hand over to nature. The point I made at the beginning about farmers being experts, we have to manage the landscape. The UK, whether we like it or not, is a farmed landscape. And the uplands have been farmed for millennia. Now, I couldn't come here tonight as a lowland farmer without speaking to my great friend in Northumberland, Graham Dixon. Now, I took uh, the chair of the Environment Agency up to meet Graham, and Graham bowled up to me, and he said, oh, you're that woman from the Environment Agency. And I said, no, I'm not. I'm your president of the NFU. And uh, I thought, oh, no, here we go, another grumpy upland farmer. And you know what? He gave the most phenomenal presentation. So he's finishing 2,000 lambs for M&S. He stopped the village of Elwinton flooding with his um, natural flood risk management measures. And he's the farm behind the five-point sheep nameless plan that was launched three years ago at the Oxford Farming Conference. To say Emma was bowled over by him is an understatement. And he is now working in partnership with the Environment Agency, rolling out the natural flood mismanagement measures that they are delivering. And I said to Graham, I said, Graham, if this was your, if it was you standing here tonight, what do you really think we have to offer? He said, does everybody in that room want high welfare, nutrient-dense, safe, affordable food? Do they want that? I would say yes. Do they recognise farmers' role in mitigating climate change? That we can plant more trees? We can do this in a way that really, really works for everybody, like I've shown at Alwinton? And are we going to rebalance agriculture's relationship with nature? Does Brexit offer us, us, us an opportunity to do things differently? Yes, it does. The point I want to get across to you tonight, and I feel so passionate and so worried about not landing that point with this intelligent audience, is farmers going forwards are the solution. And I absolutely urge you to oppose this motion tonight. Thank you. Our second speaker for the motion is Mark Cocker, acclaimed as an author and as a naturalist. His latest book is called Our Place, Can We Save Britain's Wildlife Before It Is Too Late? And he argues in that that our world has become increasingly denatured, bare of flowers 
of animals and of birdsong, and he examines in the book the threat to the British countryside posed by agribusiness and landed estates. Mark Cocker. I want to delve a little into two background issues, circling back on one of the points that George made, but also offer a final reflection on the real challenge we face in our relationship with the rest of life in these islands. But first I want to reiterate that it's perfectly reasonable for us here to debate the matter in the heart of London. I raise it precisely because a number of people have said constantly on Twitter in the run-up to this event that it's a subject entirely for rural communities to discuss amongst themselves. Well, they are correct in one sense. Most of us don't own or manage land. 55 million of us living in towns or cities own an average of seven one-hundredths of an acre. But it doesn't mean that we don't play a part in the administration and conduct of what happens on the land of others. Because for the last 80 years, we have paid scores of billions of pounds to landowners. My money, your money, Jonathan, and your Secretary of State, Michael Gove, and it's great to have you here. Three billion of it, on average, every year goes to farmers. There is a perverse dimension to this, because you might assume that in a progressive country, the most needy would be best rewarded. But that isn't how it works. The biggest sums go to the biggest landowners. Our largest landowner, the Duke of Buccleuch, with his 244,000 acres of Scotland, was in receipt in 2016 and 17 of 2,075,938 pounds and 51 pence. And the reason we give him so much, because the more land you own, the more money you receive. That levering of money out of the public purse from the ordinary citizen and even from the poorest to the richest is nothing less than feudalism. It is unjust. It has to end. But for our purposes, understanding the scale of that financial giveaway allows us to sweep aside the argument put forward by farmers or their supporters that what happens on their land is nobody's business but theirs. It is our business. We have a right to discuss it and be involved in the future of our land. It may not be a case of insisting that farmers must do exactly what we want, but we are completely within our rights to discuss it, and it's perfectly okay for us to ask that things change. So why do they need to change? My second point is to clarify what subsidies marching in lockstep with a system of agricultural intensification have inflicted on our country during the last century. In effect, the British people have had to endure the most radical simplification of their country. Where once there was complexity, filigree, beauty and meaning, there are now in large measure uniformly engineered engineered arable monocultures or a rectilinear system of grey's field comprised of nothing but livestock and grass. One overlooked but fundamental part of that simplification is what has happened to the human diversity in those same places. At the height of subsidy-driven intensification, Conservative MP Richard Boddy judged that we'd lost 130,000 small farmers in a single generation from the 1960s. Its impact on the non-human inhabitants of these islands that comprise our countryside has been nothing short of devastating. From England, we've lost 99% of 4 million acres of flower-rich meadows. In southern England, large moths have declined by 40% in the last few decades. Three-quarters of all British butterflies have declined in either abundance or distribution in the last 40 years. During the 20th century, we lost a million ponds. All our amphibians and reptiles are threatened as a consequence. So I want to tell you a little bit about how the decline of birds impacted upon me. This is what intensification and subsidies have done to the places where I was born in Buxton in Derbyshire. Precisely the kind of area where we could do something other than overgraze it with sheep. When I was a child of 12 to 18, this was a landscape of lapwings and grey partridges, snipe and reed buntings. Woodcocks performed their fabulous roading displays over our garden in the evenings. And just up the road in the woods, above where I lived, I'd see wood warblers singing in the beaches. 
Cuckoos sang every spring morning. There were red starts and tree pipits, spotted flycatchers and common sandpipers around the reservoir. They were part of my daily life, most moving, and I remember it vividly, a moment in 1972 when I first saw as a 12-year-old boy a ringoozle, a migrant upland thrush with a plaintive, wild voice that bred in the gritstone cloughs. Since then, all of those birds that I have mentioned have gone completely or remain merely as occasional visitors as part of a red-letter day whenever they're sighted. They've not just gone from Buxton and from my daily life, those species have declined nationwide by between 60 to 95%. All of them, every single one. Overall, in the last 40 years, we know we have lost 44 million breeding birds. That's what happens when you strip nature down to the very stump. That's what happens as a consequence of a subsidy-driven industrial farming regime over 80 years that pursues only production and treats land as a a medium for tax breaks or for profit. Land is so much more than that. Nature is at the heart of our spiritual lives. It's a safety valve for our mental well-being. It's the theatre for all forms of physical exercise. It's a key driver of our cultural life. Place, our special places, are at the heart of our sense of identity. Nature is part of our daily joy. These are the things it does for us, other than provide food, which is absolutely essential, of course. But it also provides home and life for 50 to 80,000 other species than our own. They have a right to live here too. Plants, trees, mosses, ferns, fogs, toads, bees, butterflies, moths, spiders, birds, mammals, fungi, liverworts. Yet the State of Nature report of 2016 the most authoritative audit of British wildlife ever undertaken, judged England to be the 28th most denatured country on earth. How bad does it have to get before our opponents admit that things cannot go on? It is time to put something back into the land other than ourselves. We need more nature in the uplands, but we need it everywhere. We need it in our cities, in our back gardens, in our civic spaces. What is rewilding but allowing more nature to coexist alongside us? We should realize that real rewilding is not something that happens out there, only in remote bits of the countryside far from here. It is something we can all do and share. It is a further reason why we should hold a debate here, because it is as relevant in this place as it is in Rory's Cumbria. So when you vote for it tonight, recall that it's something in which you can and should participate. And if you're not willing to do it on your patch, then don't expect upland farmers. I have faith, however, that you will share my contention that we cannot go on as we have. We have to change. And we must restore nature to this denuded country. If we don't, we will rob future generations of what it means to live fully in connection with the rest of life. I ask you to approve the motion. Our uh, second speaker against the motion is Rory Stewart, the Conservative MP for Penrith and the Borders, and the Border, uh, therefore is the MP for the constituency in England with the largest percentage of uplands. In 2018, he was made Justice Minister, and before that, he was the Minister of State for Africa, and before that, he was Minister for the Environment and Rural Affairs at DEFRA. Uh, Indeed, after the awful floods of 2015-2016, he was the flood envoy for Cumbria and Lancashire, overseeing the recovery efforts there. Um, He is passionate about the borderlands between England and Scotland, which you can discover if you read his book, The Marches, A Borderland Journey, between England and Scotland, his most recent book. Rory Stewart. Well, thank you very much indeed. Um, This is a very, very serious debate. And although we've had a lot of very entertaining speeches, it is important to try to clarify what the differences are between our positions. So I'm going to be a a little bit boring to begin. Right? The key point about this debate is it is about rewilding the uplands. 
It is not about whether or not we care about nature in Britain. So we need to begin absolutely by acknowledging that a lot of what George and Mark have said is 100% absolutely true. There has been a terrible loss in Britain, particularly since 1940, since the Second World War, in terms of beauty, in terms of wildlife, in terms of meaning. A lot of that has unfortunately been driven through the 40s, 50s, and 60s by agricultural policy long before anybody joined the European Union. An enormous amount of damage has also been done by forestry plantation. Damage has been done by cities. Damage has also been done by abandonment of land. All of this together means that everything that George and Mark have said in terms of environmental damage is absolutely correct. And I'm not here in any way to challenge their erudition, their knowledge. The question is, how do we respond to this? And in particular, do we respond to this in terms of this motion, which is and is only about rewilding the uplands? Now, that means that I have to deal with two quite different people here, right? One of them, of course, is George. Now, it's extremely difficult arguing against a man of such immense chutzpah, erudition, able to quote Thomas More off the top of his head, who talks sometimes in Guardian articles about his delight at the notion of reintroducing the Asian elephant and the rhino, only to change positions and suggest he doesn't really mean that, he means the wolf and the lynx, who talks about creating two Serengetis in Europe and then shifts back to saying perhaps Britain is too small. I ought to know how difficult it is to argue against someone like this. I ought to know how difficult it is to try to make small, detailed, reasonable arguments against someone like this. I worked for Boris Johnson. (laughs) Now, Mark, on the other hand, is making a different kind of argument. Mark is making a very, very powerful argument for the British environment. But very little of his argument, if you listen to it carefully, was about rewilding or about rewilding the uplands. He talked with immense passion and conviction about the loss of butterflies. Many of those butterflies would not flourish in the close canopy temperate rainforest that George Monbiot is imagining appearing through a rewilded uplands. Many of the species which have been evoked by Mark's powerful speech, and this might even extend to lapwings and curlew, may also not flourish in a close forested or even scrubbed environment. It's also true that much of the loss that he's talking about in terms of ponds and a lot of the arguments he's making around industrial agriculture simply barely apply to the uplands of England. That industrial architecture, enshrined in the agriculture, I quote the words that he's using. He's talking about arable monoculture. He's talking about rectilineal pastoral systems. These are simply not characteristic of the uplands. In that amazingly charming exposition by George, he began with a great fact. He produced a great vision. Europe in general has 37% woodland cover. Britain, by contrast, has only 13%. And what is responsible for this? It is subsidies, and in particular the subsidies of the European Union. What is the problem with this argument? The problem with this argument is that woodland cover today in Britain is larger than any time since the 14th century. The entire amount of woodland cover in Britain in 1900 was 3%. Would George like to explain exactly how we went from 3% coverage in 1900 to 13% coverage today, and somehow it's all the fault of European Union subsidies? 
shades of Boris Johnson begin to appear in my mind, right? Mark should be on this side of the table. Mark is arguing for good environmental restoration projects, and in particular, he's put a huge focus on the catastrophic damage to our lowlands. The uplands, ironically, contain most of the triple SIs in Britain. It is exactly because there has not been intensive agriculture in the uplands that we now end up in the perverse situation that environmentalists are trying to argue for the displacement of farmers from the uplands as a reward for the fact that those farmers did not trash the environment in the same way that the lowlands were trashed. Instead of turning around 180 degrees, the basis of George's argument, George has stated in a Guardian article, 2013, that there are three reasons why we should concentrate on the uplands. Number one, it is unproductive land. Number two, that it is far from cities. And number three, that it is sparsely populated. Those are exactly the three reasons why we should be focusing on environmental projects in the lowlands. That fertile productive land is far more capable of generating biodiversity. The key example of the kind of rewilding we should be doing in this country, and by rewilding, of course, I don't mean the visions of the Yellowstone National Park that George sometimes tongue-in-cheek evokes of wolves and lynxes and great romping herbivores, Serengetis, is in fact what's happening in Nep in Sussex at the moment a really strong example of how taking 3,500 acres of lowland farm can deliver species such as the nightingale, such as the turtle dove, which, of course, do not live in the uplands. That loss of the nightingale has absolutely nothing to do with the uplands. Again, it should be close to cities and close to populated areas because the natural capital value lies partly as George implies, in humans getting into that landscape. Far more health benefits will accrue to the populations if we did, and this is my radical proposal for you to take on these radical proposals, if we rewilded the greenbelt. Right? If we planted trees all the way around London, then the benefits would be extraordinary. School children would get out into that environment. The health benefits of walking in that environment would follow. The air quality benefits that would follow from foresting the greenbelt in terms of nitrogen dioxide and sulfur dioxide emissions in London would be astonishing. Doing it in the uplands achieves none of these benefits. And insofar as there is a population in the uplands, it is because of something I wish to finish on. The fundamental point is firstly that these upland farmers are people who live there, who own that land, who have rights and who are working unbelievably hard day in, day out to preserve it. But finally, that the landscape that they are preserving is the landscape we dream of when we fight on the Western Front. That landscape of wild uplands and pasture, of sheep, and dry stone walls embodies not just history, but meaning which is central to our identity. Thank you very much indeed. You will want to know, I'm sure, what the vote was before we started. For the motion, Rewilding, 61%. Against, 13%. Undecided, 26%. See what happens when we have the final vote. Uh, who's going to kick off with questions and thoughts from the floor? We've got one down here, number one. Some research that's come out of the University of Exeter shows that the presence of beavers on land... Uh, well, a pair of beavers over five years built 15 dams in an enclosure site and they trapped 100 tonnes of sediment coming off uh, farmland, uh, well, the surrounding land. 70% of that soil was farmland soil. Uh, they also reduced uh, phosphate uh, flow by a quarter and nitrates by a third. They're, they seem to have this great role in buffering our aquatic 
habitats. So what are, you, what are you asking? Well, as well as that effect, they can buffer against flooding in the uplands. So surely, is there not a role for beavers in rewilding the uplands, but also supporting uh, farming uh, communities there and the impacts they may be having? Okay. George, Rory made the point earlier, 3% in 1900 of, of, of the land was covered with trees. Now 13%, which suggests an increase. How, I noticed earlier you talked about uh, a pro, you, didn't, you, you said some large areas should be rewilded. Put those two things together. How much more woodland cover do you want to see? All right, well, well on Rory's point, the point about Europe is that the woodland has recovered in the uplands. They, most of European countries were also bare. And there's been a massive woodland recovery. You go to Slovenia, you go to Italy, you go to Switzerland, you go to so many European countries, you will see forests where there were not forests before 100 years ago. That has not happened here, and it's happened for the reasons I outlined. What percentage would you get to if you get your way? Well, you've you've, I mean, you've rewilded like, these huge areas. I, I, would, I would like to see at least 10% of the British uplands become rewilded. And you know, I'm not talking about a blanket uh, rewilding by any means, but... You know, this is the most appropriate place for trees to grow because you're not displacing fertile land which should be used for growing food. And while I would love to see more trees in the green belt as well, I don't want to take vast tracts of good food-producing land out of production. I want to see it in the places where it makes, makes no sense to be farming because you produce so little. So, so l- l- let me just come back on, on George. Uh, the fundamental point about Britain... Uh, is that we have been very densely populated for a very, very long time. These trees have not disappeared from Britain recently. If you look at the uplands where I live in the Lake District, you can see from the positioning of Roman signal stations that this land was deforested at the time of the Romans. You can see from the positioning of Neolithic standing stones, which relied on astronomical visions, and you can see also from pollen sampling and from the nature of the peat that this land was deforested a very long time ago. In fact, the majority of Britain, as George knows and as Mark knows, was deforested during the Neolithic period. At the same time, this point about Europe is simply not true. The woodland cover in Poland, for example, in the 18th and 19th century, was approximately 40% of the landmass when it was 3% in Britain. It is currently in Poland at about 28%. The story fundamentally is that these European countries were much wilder and insofar as scrub and trees have returned to Europe, they have returned because of depopulation abandonment of those areas. Okay. 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 Um, Mark, would you pick up on the, on the yeah. beaver question in the context of what you were saying about the denaturing? Yes. Of course, beavers would be part. I mean, the other thing to, to qualify is that Rory tried in a fantastically skillful military manoeuvre to split George and me up. Uh, and I applaud his fabulous strategy that would have been a great success in Afghanistan, but doesn't work here. I was simply fleshing out some of the underpinning arguments that drive Georgia's main contention that the uplands are the place. It's the cheapest and most meaningful part to make the biggest impact as quickly as possible. I mean, one of the interesting things is that beavers, we have been trying cautiously to reintroduce beavers. I think it's a fantastic way in which we could manage more sustainably our riverine environments. One of the interesting things is that the, the major drag on beaver reintroduction has been the deep caution of farmers. And understandably, there are conservative people, but, you know, we need to awaken that these things can be incredibly profitable on a whole range of things, such as climate change, sediment control, flooding, etc., etc. Um, in the fourth, third or fourth row, I can't quite see because the lights are glaring at us, there was a woman with her hand up, with yes. dark hair. Hello, yes. I would like to uh, ask about predation. Probably, this is probably for, for Mark. I... Uh, I think probably all of us in this room are very worried about butterflies and songbirds being on the decline. Who is, and who is not worried in this room about the decline of butterflies? Right, 100% are with <laughs> okay, you. Okay, good. That's a good start. Uh, but I feel that farmers always get the blame for this, and particularly intensive agriculture. And something that isn't talked about enough is predation. Uh, 
we worry about hedgehogs. And in the hedgehog debate, it's always about the lack of habitat. But actually, very few people mention that badgers eat hedgehogs. Badgers are a huge predator, the biggest predator. Songbirds, songbirds are down so severely. Sparrowhawks, there's a clue in the name. Sparrowhawks eat sparrows. And yet the RSPB uh, only protect songs of prey. Okay, point taken, predation, Mark. Well, each issue has to be taken on its own. I mean, the other thing to say is a blue tit is a predator. Young blue tits in your bird box are nothing but caterpillar larvae. But the reason that uh, songbirds have declined or some songbirds have declined is not the increase in sparrowhawks. It's an old chestnut. All of the studies that have been done... One classic example... One classic example is the blame put on magpies for the loss of songbirds. What they found was that where magpies had exponentially increased in numbers, so had the songbirds as well. They have lived side by side for tens of thousands, millions of years. And of course, some localised impacts of predation are very negative, but they aren't the problem themselves. Minette. Look, predation has huge impact. I just want to, you know, Mark, you talk about headage payments. It is really naughty to do that. 20 years ago, headage payments ended. 20 years ago. You bring it up tonight to sensationalise the argument. They went 20 years ago. It is not relevant to the farming of today. But the point on predation, you know, I am lucky enough to farm on the Wiltshire, Hampshire Avon. I can see Theresa Dent from the Game and Wildlife Conservancy Trust. And we as farmers have come together in order to make sure that we get the lapwing back in the numbers that we want on the Avon Valley. Now, what we have found is that we have to put a special protection over the lapwing nests in order to keep the foxes away. The lapwings are coming back onto the Avon Valley, but predation is a massive issue. You know, the fox doesn't have a natural predator. The badger doesn't have a natural predator. And if you've got ground-nesting birds, you've got to have the right environment for it. And, you know, we have to take that seriously. You can't just say predation isn't an issue. Of course it is an issue. If you're a ground-nesting bird and you lay your eggs on the ground, it is not rocket science to work out that they are easy fodder for anything to come along and eat. Over there. So we've heard a lot about the cost-benefit analysis of responsibly restoring or responsibly stewarding land. Um, and I accept that it's probably the role of a responsible government to triage public money in terms of where, and where they spend it in the first instance. I just wonder, I'm really conscious of the quote from John 1010 above the, above the thing, and I just wonder where the space is and also what the mechanisms are for preserving species biodiversity for other than human reasons. Or Sorry, human, where the spaces are. Where the, where the spaces and what the mechanisms are for preserving species biodiversity for reasons other than human use and also for, the, for purposes we know not which we may need in the future. And over there, where number three was... What comes into the mind is that there are a number of different species that need to be protected in a number of different ways. So it's partly the question of the space that is available and partly the question of what is required to protect biodiversity in uh, a society where we also grow food. Um, who would like to start on that? Why don't you well, start, well, Mark? Well, Your main assault was on industrialised agriculture. Well, is, is it compatible with the production of food on large-scale farms at relatively, take into account the subsidies, relatively uh, low cost? Well, what I would say is that the cheapest deal we have is to, re- to, to increase our biodiversity, to fulfil our own human needs as spaces for agriculture, but also for recreation, etc., spiritual, cultural needs. The uplands are the cheapest deal on offer. But truthfully, what we need is, is something everywhere. And there are different arguments in different places. I mean, look, I, I violently agree with Mark. I'm not, I'm not uh, making a joke when I say that he's on our side. The, there are very small points of difference. <laughs> One of them is it's simply not true that in natural capital terms, the uplands are the cheapest land. If you look at the full natural capital value of lowland land, I took the example of the green belt around London. In terms of its potential for biodiversity, its potential for air pollution, its potential for recreation, its potential for human contact, the value of that land in natural capital terms makes it a much, much better deal than upland land. But the more fundamental point, which I think 
we keep edging around is that land in Britain is contested. We're a very densely populated island. We are more densely populated than India, right? That's one of the reasons why this is under so much pressure. So we have to weigh up biodiversity, which is under serious threat, alongside food production. So to answer this question about hypocrisy, we need to think not just about how much food we produce, but how much food we consume. And unless, like George, you become a vegan, if you continue to eat sheep, but you just drive those sheep off the British uplands, all you're doing is pushing the environmental damage onto somebody else's country, right? Those same sheep are out there, they're eating up somebody else's country, their methane is going up into the air and destroying the climate from somebody else's country. And the final thing is let's not lose sight of meaning and history in this debate because that human landscape is as precious as Westminster Cathedral. You know, there's so many more. Very quickly, George. Rory is so right. We do need to stop eating sheep. (laughs) Yes, just just, in there, and then number four, and then down here, and there's so many, I'd love to bring everyone in. We're not going to be able to. So up there, number four first, then number one, and then the guy here whose arm is nearly falling off because it's been up for the last 27 minutes. Um, in the front row. So, fourth question. Um, about 30 years ago, my brothers and I inherited 220 acres of uh, essentially uh, pit props. Uh, we were growing pit props for mines. My grandfather made, a, I think, a tax-based investment in the 1950s on the edge of a major UK city. For 30 years, my brothers and I have been in the planning system. And as far as I'm aware... The only way that we can rewild these, uh, uh, these uh, coniferous trees into deciduous, deciduous woodland is through some form of planning development, some sort of housing. Now, the problem with that is, on the edge of a city, that you immediately have the planning system attacked by people who don't like the idea of houses, and I can understand that. But the people who live in those houses don't get to vote because they're not in that village at that time. So I'd like to ask the panel, how can we rewild on a micro scale as individual landowners if we need to build houses and what effect would that have on the planning system to resolve that problem? Thank you. Okay, thank you. And down, where was the next one down, down, down here? Yeah, it's down here, number one. Um, I'm a farmer, I'm a member of the NFU, and I agree with Manette that farmers could do much to make a difference. The problem is we get a lot of your money for doing nothing, and we've got a lot of your money for doing nothing for a very long time, and things have to change. Having said that, farmers are very, very good. They're very, very good at producing things, and nature conservation organisations are not. So there's a lot we can learn from farmers, and we should be doing that. But when it comes to beavers, I worked with beavers for 20 years, and we talk about the uplands. One of the huge problems we have is that there are very few trees up there. And if we're going to have beavers up there doing all the marvellous things they do, producing a landscape which has 80% greater biomass, 80% greater biodiversity, which is literally shrilling, calling, thrumming with life, we are going to have to replant those uplands, put the trees back, and then restore them on a scale that we're also not used to doing. Because in Britain, we focus on small species, and this is a big animal. Thank you very much. Number three... um, after we've heard this one down here. I'm confused about the, the economics of the question. I have one question for each side. For Rory and Minette's side, how do you confront this apparent fact that upland farming is uneconomic? Can you explain that? It doesn't seem to be worth doing. On the other hand, for the other side, your ambitions are that there would be a great increase in economic value from people visiting uh, these uplands if they were rewilded. But given the immense economic value... Uh, which is shown by tourism in, for example, the Lake District. Is that realistic? Okay. Rory, first of all. Okay. Or Manette. So, so um, the, the answer to this question is that I was rather surprised by George saying that the uplands are depopulated. Any of you who have queued in Ambleside for an hour and a half or visited Ellswater would be uh, a bit surprised by this. My constituency is, of course, more densely populated than it's been at any time in history. And in fact, all these things that George is talking about, guides, archery, outdoor industries, are driving our economy. We generate £2.4 billion a year 
out of the uplands as they currently stand. Now, how does the economics work to this question? The subsidies, as Manette points out, per farmer for delivering that to the visitor, we get about 14 million visitors a year, works out at about £3.20 per visitor for our heritage, for the contribution they make to our dry stone walls and to that landscape which they visit. By contrast, the amount of money which you as the taxpayer give to the Victoria and Albert Museum compared to the number of visitors at that museum works out at £14.50 per visitor. So the economic argument for this on the basis of tourism is that you are getting, for about a quarter of the amount of money, all that delight of the Lake District preserved by those farmers. I'll come back to you, Minette. George, um, your economic case. So so there was um, two surveys, one conducted by the National Trust, one by Newton Rigg College, both of which did a very similar thing. They showed people pictures of the Lake District with more and more trees in those pictures. They'd photoshopped trees in. And first they asked people... What is the current state of the Lake District? And almost everybody pointed to the pictures with more trees than there actually are. Then they said, what would you like the state of the Lake District to be? And overwhelmingly, people chose more trees, not just than there are, but than they thought there were. It's not the subsidies and the sheep farming that are drawing people in. This crazy equation that that money that we're spending translates into tourism, there's no link between those things at all, except possibly a negative link. George, You've do gone you, over once. So George, question, George, do you, do you, do you, do, do you accept <laughs> on the statistics... I don't want to... Who wants to stop a flow? Um, they, they, <laughs> do you accept that there are approximately 70 million and per capita per visit that equates to, according to Manette, 330 and according he's downing the price, 320. That, that, that in its own terms is, a, is economically cheap. For, for, for the, no, uh, for no, the they're, user. They're, they're dividing farm subsidies by the number of visitors. Now, I might as well divide the number of spiders in Britain by the number of visitors. The two things are not connected. Minette. <laughs> Minette. Look, I mean, George talks about photoshopping trees on. I mean, that is like going to my children and say, look, you can photoshop more and more and more sweets. Do you want that? Well, yes, of course they're going to say yes. You can't just... I mean, it it, it is an insult to our landscape to say that you can photoshop it and and give an accurate picture of what is going on, George. And and where does your evidence case come from? Is that that you sitting down at the family table saying, does this photoshop look better? Does this one look better? Does this one look better? I mean, where have you engaged with to find that? Um, The the other point on profitable farming in, in the uplands... You know, there is a challenge for the UK in, in that we have a very high cost of regulation in the UK. Now, if you compare us to a country like New Zealand that hasn't chosen to regulate on, on water quality, it is starting to now because it has to. We have been doing that for many years. And regulation is not free. Regulation costs. You cannot say that upland farmers are unprofitable. There's clear evidence, if you look at the AHDB work, that shows that actually the top 25% are are absolutely in profit. And there are many things in a new policy we can do to look at driving profitability, not least sorting out the supply chain and making sure that farmers are at least getting a fair return. Are the the, the income figures that one reads uh, suggest that the upland farmers... um, uh, 12,000 a year income, way below the uh, minimum wage? It is a very challenged uh, way of life in places because it is very prescriptive as to what you can and can't do. So your average upland farming business has got 28 breeding cows and 330 approximately breeding ewes. So those are not big farming businesses. Those are small farming businesses. Cheap numbers have declined a lot uh, in the last 20 years since the, the days that, that Mark was talking about. Yeah. Um, but ultimately, many of these things can be changed. But as I said to you, and it is an important point, if farmers could achieve a fair return from the market, then actually they would need no support at all. But the uplands is fair providing... Return, a fair return from the market means... Pay more for your, your sheep meat, effectively. Well, above well, a cost of production price. If you're producing anything below the cost of production, okay. you will lose money. But the uplands also provides a vast amount of things that the market doesn't pay for. So this is very much okay. what Michael Gove is focusing on. And we've got to look to the future. Um, we move to the point where it would be great if we could go on, but we have to pause. When you came in, 61% were for the motion, 13% were against the motion, 26% were undecided. 
after the debate. 52% were for the motion, 39% were against, and 9% were undecided, which is a swing uh, against the uh, proposers of the motion or of their argument of 18%. That's the outcome. My job now is simply to say thank you. I thought, I'm sure you did too, that everyone, Minette, spoke with eloquence, passion, demonstrating the extreme importance to everyone involved of this massively significant debate. So thank you to George Monbiot, Rory Stewart, Mark Cocker and Minette Batters. Finally, on all our behalves, on all our behalves, thank you yet again to Intelligence Squared. Good night. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.